So, a few weeks ago, we began this journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the most influential teachings in all of the Bible. And in my first sermon in this series, I mentioned how how many world changers in world history have been directly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. and and Gandhi and St. Augustine, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, among many, many other people. And as exciting as that kind of list of big names is, um, people who change the world aren't always the ones that history remembers, right? Um, By far the most influential group of people are the myriad generations of individuals who have been shaped by the formative power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And and it's, it's played out in the way that they have raised their families or treated their friends, um, treated their co-workers, how they've run their businesses or served in their churches or loved their neighbors as themselves. This is by far the most populous and influential group when you compare that to the world makers that are, have their own Wikipedia page. But even if we mention all of those little, little victories, trust me, Being a good parent is not a little victory. (laughs) I'm not even sure I'm there yet, but even if we don't mention all of these little victories of personal change, we would still be missing a major element of the sermon. And the reason I think that we miss this major element is because most of us are blinded by our current cultural desire for the success story, right? So whether it's social media posts or documentaries for sports and athletes or testimonies in church, we are a people in America who love victory stories. We love them way more than suffering stories, and if we do tell a suffering story, we only like the suffering story if there's a positive outcome. But the main audience of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in his original context were not people who were already doing the things that he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He did not set out to go find people who were poor in spirit, or humble, or merciful, or pure in heart, or fill in the blank. Jesus was approached by a group of people who had been told, you have no claim on God. A group of people who believed that because of their lot in life, their sickness or or their suffering or political oppression, rejection from religious elites, this group group of people came to Jesus and he declared good news to them. Now, can the Sermon on the Mount change the world? Well, yeah, in the power of the Spirit and with open hearts who are open to change, yeah, it can do a lot of good, absolutely. But primarily, the Sermon on the Mount is a message of good news to us before we are transformed. This is a message to anyone who has ever thought to themselves, I'm too disqualified to follow Jesus, let alone be accepted by him. This is a message to anyone who has ever believed that you're too far gone in order to be invited into the kingdom of heaven. This is a message to anyone, which means that no matter how low or how out there you are or how low you might be feeling today, It is a message for you, and I'm preaching it also because it's a message to me, and I need to hear it. 
The Sermon on the Mount is good news, and it begins with eight so-called Beatitudes. And that means that the Beatitudes are also good news. Now, so far in our series, we've covered the first three, and today we're going to focus on the fourth Beatitude. Here it is. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. Now, I realize that my whole sermon is based on one sentence, but there's actually a whole lot going on underneath the surface that we, we can bring out just by defining some terms and bridging some context. Let me just give a quick review. I don't ever want to assume that you listened to last week or that you even remember if you did listen to it. Um, so over the past few weeks, we've gone to great lengths to explain that each of the eight Beatitudes are statements of good news, and that they're best translated into English beginning with the word flourishing. And I mentioned how I, I, I came to that conclusion reading a scholar named uh, Pennington is his last name, and, and he does all of this work on, on the, uh, the Hebrew background and the Greek background, and this idea of flourishing as a much better translation than blessed. Jesus declares a state of flourishing and potential flourishing for the people who he's addressing. And we've gone to great lengths to show that he can declare flourishing not because of the state that the audience is necessarily in, but because of what God is going to do for them. So, for example, people are not flourishing because they have a poverty of spirit. Like, no one is saying, great job, you are far from God and you feel horrible, right? But, but it is because Jesus declares them heirs to the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're flourishing and can flourish. And in this fourth beatitude, it says flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not because they hunger and thirst for righteousness, but because they will be satisfied. Now that's all review. And I, I just wanted to remind us that flourishing is declared flourishing because of what God will do for the audience for the hearer, for the follower, for you and me. Okay, so it seems to me that for the rest of our time together, since I get to make this up, um, I'm, I'm the preacher, uh, we should understand three key terms. And they are hunger and thirst, I'll take that as one, right? Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. We need to understand what hunger and thirst means. We need to understand what righteousness means, and we need to understand what on earth is he talking about satisfaction? Is this like a Rolling Stones song that is finally he can get satisfaction? I don't know. Um, <laughs> thank you, somebody. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> most of us, most of the time, most of the time can eat or drink whenever we want or at least whenever we need to. You know, unless we are fasting for a particular purpose and barring circumstances that are completely out of our ordinary, we typically don't hunger or thirst in the way that the fourth beatitude is talking about, right? The verbal forms of these words, hunger and thirst, are present active participles, which means, sorry if you're not a, a grammar nerd, uh, what this means is that it could be translated and more accurately translated as flourishing are those who are hungering perpetually and thirsting perpetually for righteousness, 
This is not a loose metaphor for desire. Uh, It's not like a trivial hunger, uh, like when you're hiking all day and you stop for a well-deserved freeze-dried meal or a drink, although that hunger is real, isn't it, people? But it's not just that kind of pang over a day. This, this This is sustained hunger and thirst. This person is unsatisfied. They are agitated. They are frustrated. They are uncomfortable. They're in pain. Hungering and thirsting, ongoing, deep longing. That's kind of at the heart of what this phrase is about. And what is the object of this hungering and thirsting that Jesus is speaking of? It's, it's righteousness. In Greek, it's dikaiosune. Can you say dikaiosune? Dikaiosune. This is, you're going to see this word over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus loves talking about righteousness. And you'll, in fact, you're going to notice that uh, in, as we go on and on and on in this, in this sermon series. Uh, it's equally important, though, that we not try and define righteousness by our own perspective, which I know is just such a mental trip. Um, it's tempting to think of righteousness as whatever our culture defines as righteousness. Um, so other Otherwise, we might be misled into thinking that flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for, I don't know, what is righteous in our culture? Self-expression, right? You are righteous if you are you, whatever you are. Uh, Or flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for power. Or flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for autonomy or freedom to define ourselves, or a certain form of politics, be they liberal or conservative or or libertarian. And see, no culture is completely evil, and no culture is completely good. And in fact, there's fantastic biblical warrant for interacting with culture and redeeming culture, but we are on extremely shaky ground if we mistake our cultural vantage point for the kingdom of God or our definition of righteousness as God's definition of righteousness. So what is this righteousness that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? What does dikaiosune mean? What is it that the flourishing are perpetually and uncomfortably hungry and thirsty for? Well, the starting point, of course, to define what righteousness is, is the righteous one. It's God himself. We're going to let him um, define what righteousness is. And throughout scripture, in the narrative of the covenant and in the prophets, there are two words that, that parallel each other, two sides of the same coin, and, and they describe what righteousness is. Both of these terms are translated as justice. And you've heard me say, talk about these before because they're so foundational to Scripture. The two sides of the coin of righteousness are tzedek and mishpat. These are Hebrew words, tzedek and mishpat. Tzedek, one side of that righteousness coin, has to do with right relatedness in social structures. Getting along in social structures. So tzedek is the motive that God has for releasing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. That's tzedek justice. It's liberation from captivity. Um, Tzedek is justice in the social structures of political policies. 
right? It's justice against systemic racism on a national level, and it's also justice against racist jokes in your household or with your roommate or at work, right? So it's, it's massive and social, and it's also individual, okay? But it's about right relatedness. Tzedek is the type of justice that's concerned with with policies that discriminate, for example, against women or minorities. Tzedek is justice that's right-relatedness among people. Okay, so that's one side of what righteousness means. And on the other side of that righteousness coin is called mishpat. And mishpat has to do with economic justice. So in the ancient world, people would go to the market, just like every market was a farmer's market in the ancient world, and you would have a set of scales, and they're kind of makeshift scales, and you'd have counterweights, and so Nathaniel comes, and, and our families are close friends or whatever, and, and so when, when I, actually I go to him, I go to the market, and he's got a set of scales for me, and I put the wheat on there, and I pay a price, okay? But then somebody else comes, like Abby comes, and uh, she's from that other tribe that we were at war with before. And so Nathaniel, before he sees her coming, and he changes the counterweight. And so now, that grain, she gets less grain for the same price that I just paid, okay? And, and you, you can just see how that would make your skin crawl if you knew that that was happening and there's no one else you could go to for the grain. And so in the prophets and in the law, God talks about the justice of the scales. He talks about economic justice. Um, and, and he speaks against this behavior all throughout the scriptures. And, and so even today, it, it's just a fact that people with lighter colored skin get better interest rates on their mortgages than people with black and brown skin. That's not right. We know statistically that women get charged more at the auto shop than men. That's, that's just not right. Well, we know that still in, the America, in America today, the on average, women still make significantly less than men for the same position and experience and skill set. Okay, so this, this is the stuff that Mishpat's talking about. It, it's this economic justice in the marketplace, and it affects more than, than how much you pay for wheat or coffee. It, it affects how we treat each other in, in compensation and, and all of these things. Dekayasune, righteousness, is the two-sided coin of justice. It, it, the purpose of this justice coin, the goal of the twin sides of Tzedek and Mishpat, is for right relatedness with people. Right relatedness. That's what righteousness means. If you got anything out of all of that stuff I just said, know that righteousness equals right relatedness. And, and, and righteousness in scripture means an attitude and behaviors that lead to right relatedness. So in particular, there's four realms in life in which people hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right-relatedness. And we've been hungering and thirsting after these things ever since we, as a, as a species, rebelled against God. And these, these are the four realms that encompass every relationship that we can conceive of. And here they are. The first one is humans and our relationship to creation. 
okay? Humans are made to be rightly related to creation, the earth, to the plants, to the animals. Uh, um, We are to order the wilderness, the wildness, to cultivate beauty, to create cities and art and dwellings that honor God and bless the world. In essence, we're to interact with creation as though it were God's temple, because that's exactly what Genesis says creation is. It's God's temple. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst, who who have deep pangs of longing to see right relatedness between ourselves and creation. Second is the realm of human beings and other human beings. This is more than like just being kind to one another, and it's more than the most recent social fad. Um, It has to do with fundamentally honoring other human beings as people made in God's image. Everyone that you will ever meet or have ever met is made in God's image and is inherently worthy of dignity. And that will mean much more respect and empathy for each other. And it's going to mean also calling each other to higher standards than our ethics, than the ethics that the world has to offer us. So our our current cultural trends tell us that social righteousness is just to let people do whatever they want to do, unless it's speaking against letting people do what they want to do, and then you get canceled. But, But God's right relatedness is more about loving, and it's also more difficult than anything that we're seeing offered in in, in the, the, the soup of culture. And not just our culture, but any culture over any time. Because being right related to each other is costly. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst, who have deep longing, desire to see right relatedness with other human beings. The third realm of relationship between, is between individuals and themselves. It's you and the person you look at in the mirror. It's you and reckoning with your history. It's you and reckoning with what you really think about you. And I've been alive 46 years. I've been a pastor for over 20. I still struggle with liking what I see in myself. And most of the stories when we're talking and we dig down to what's going on in life have to do with deep shame or disappointment in yourself, right? Like, this is a real serious issue. Humans and themselves, this is a broken relationship. Every single one of us are walking messes and we doubt our worth or sometimes we think we're better than others to hide the fact that we doubt our worth. We live in shame, and we go to great lengths to self-justify. We have a sense that there's a better way to live, but we feel that we're always failing at it, and we're hard on our bodies, and we're hard on our sense of self. And flourishing, Jesus says, to those who hunger and thirst and have deep longing, desire to see right relatedness with the person in the mirror. And fourth is the foundational relationship above all, or underneath all, depending on how you want to look at it. And it's the relationship between humans and God, between you and God. And when this relationship is strained or broken, it strains and it breaks all the other relationships. And our relationship with God, if it's good, we get get a true sense of our purpose, 
our worth, our dignity. It's our relationship with God that helps us interact with other people as his image bearers. It's our relationship with God that that should inform how we treat his creation. You know, and it's the poor in spirit who come to know that they're living in broken relationship with creation and with others and with themselves and with God. Notice, it is not flourishing are are those who are righteous. That's not the beatitude. It does not say flourishing are those who are righteous. Anyone who believes that they're truly righteous in and of themselves cannot truly be poor in spirit. They can't receive healing, the flourishing that God has for them. They're like the man in the scripture that Tim read earlier from the Gospel of Luke, who came to God full of his own self-righteousness and boasting. But you know who it was who was justified? is the sinful man who knew he was sinful and beat his breast before God and said, woe is me, a sinner, Lord have mercy. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for right relatedness. Why? Why are they flourishing? Because they will be satisfied. Again, grammar matters. Because they will be satisfied is a passive. It's not something you've got to go get. It's not something you could possibly earn. It is something given to you. That's why you're declared flourishing. And what does this satisfaction look like? And why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness satisfied? Well, there's two ways that God brings this satisfaction. And the first is in the future. It's something that is promised. From the prophets of the Old Testament to Jesus to Paul to St. John on Patmos who received the revelation for the book of Revelation, God promises a future in which evil is judged and completely wiped away and where those who hunger and thirst for the ways of God will receive the ability to live it out. I lack the ability to live it out completely. And one day, our hearts will be renewed, we'll have the ability to live it out. We are going going to inherit a world that works because we're gonna have bodies and hearts that work for right relatedness. It's in the new creation. And there's a degree to which the brokenness of the world that we encounter right now, the brokenness in our own hearts, it's too much for collective humanity to fix. And and those who hunger and thirst for such righteousness will be satisfied by the work of God in the future day of the Lord. That's our hope. But the second piece is that there's also some sense in which a level of satisfaction, an advanced payment, a little bit of the inheritance comes to us now in this time and space. God himself has come in a moment of history in the person of Jesus, and and he came before the final day of the Lord, and and he's given himself in our place for the forgiveness of sin and to redeem us and to make us rightly related with God now. Whether you feel like you are rightly related to God, no matter how much of the stuff that you're carrying you think might disqualify you, hear the words of Jesus who says, you're flourishing. In Christ, what he did on the cross, he has made us rightly related to him. I am so thankful that I don't have to feel that to to mean that it's true. 
Like the woman at the well who thirsted for more than water, Jesus is the living water. Like the crowds in the desert of John chapter 6, Jesus is more than bread. They were looking for snacks. Feed us like Moses fed us. He was like, you don't know who I am. I, I don't just give you snacks to tide you over until the next meal. I am the bread of life. That's who Jesus is. We may not be fully satisfied with right relatedness until the final day of the Lord, but we can receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ to do the things of Christ as we live in the power of Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel for now. And in this way, the good news is not just for those who feel poor in spirit or starving for justice, but as we abide in Jesus and his word, which by the way, you are doing right now. This is an exercise in abiding in his word. He will begin to shape our desires and the way that we think so that you and I grow in hungering and thirsting for more righteousness and justice in the world.